So we're starting a, a new series uh, this week. It's a three-week series called Complex Parables, and we're going to be starting with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, you might be kind of like, well, actually, out of all the parables, that seems like the least complex. Uh, that's the one we're very familiar with. We know the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, we even have first aid laws that are named after it, things like, you know, the Good Samaritan law, you know, protecting first aiders when they have to go and respond to the person in need. Um, even the, the idea of the Good Samaritan has been like adopted into society as a bit of an idiom. When somebody behaves well or looks after the person on the margins, uh, they say, oh, you know, you're like the Good Samaritan. Um, but sometimes when we're really familiar with parables or maybe familiar with any parts of the scripture, um, we kind of absorb a particular understanding of them. Uh, we see them, we know them, and they're so familiar um, that sometimes we can actually miss uh, the answer that is given to us. Um, as, as, as an example, um, on my phone, most people, you know, you kind of, as they ring, you see the number come up. Um, and there's only a few people in my life who have the no caller ID kind of thing pop up. One of those people is my wife, Megan. Uh, and, and I don't get a huge number of calls from no caller ID, but because she's like in the medical field, that's a pretty common thing, making calls to patients. Uh, and so whenever no caller ID comes up, you know, I'll pick it up and be like, hey, Megs, how you doing? And, uh, and go ahead and do that. Now, that happens enough times that now when I see no caller ID, I just kind of assume that it's Megan calling. And so it wasn't that long ago that I saw no caller ID, and I'm like, well, it's Megan. I pick it up. and go, hey, hon, how you doing? Of course, it was not Megan. It was only uh, then that I discovered it was a lovely man from the state revenue office just wanting to kind of follow up around a particular query that he had. He was very grateful that I called him honey, though, and he uh, expressed uh, appreciation for my candor. But it's in these kind of moments, right, that you kind of like, I just presume to know because I've seen it over and over again, then suddenly, unless you kind of revisit it, uh, it, can, uh, it can not take you by surprise. Or in this case today, I believe this parable ought to take us uh, by surprise. So we're going to kind of head into the text. We're going to kind of unpack it a fair bit. Um, I'm conscious that today I'm going to bring in uh, quite a bit of kind of context to this passage, things that I've spoken on before, so I'll try to refer to them um, and other sermons uh, if there's particular areas that are unfamiliar. But this is our passage here uh, from Luke chapter 10. You're welcome to turn with me to the passage if you would like as well. Uh, here's the setup. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I just want to start here. It says, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, us particularly with our Western understanding, we presume that because we've got all these different stories of these people who are trying to catch Jesus in a trap, and that was the case on various occasions, that whenever we see that word test, we presume that they are against Jesus and wanting to trap him. Now, it's important to understand that to test a rabbi was actually a very familiar and a very common process. They're simply wanting to know what is your yoke, what is your set of teachings, right? So to test the rabbi wasn't to try and catch them in a trap, it was to gain an understanding of what their particular set of teachings or the interpretation of their teachings were. So this question that's being asked by an expert in the law is probably genuine. He genuinely wants to know, right? He's an expert in the law. He's familiar with the Torah, the text. He's familiar with what it means to follow it from his understanding. And now he's testing Jesus to see what Jesus thinks of this. And note his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, what is written in the law? Jesus replied, how 
do you read it? Now again, these words eternal life, we have these particular ideas of eternal life and like heaven and the star, singing with the angels and that kind of eternal life kind of thing. Eternal life in the Jewish perspective was olam haba, life in the world to come, but even more so than eternal life, it was around what does it look like to follow the Torah? What does it look like to obey God? Because if I find my life in God, that life begins right now, and we call that eternal life. And so this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is actually the question, what must I do, or how do I keep the commands? How do I keep Torah? Right? That's what he's asking. How do I actually keep Torah? And though it doesn't surprise us that Jesus then responds, well, what is written in the law? What is written in there? If you're asking me how to keep Torah, what is written in Torah? And so he asks this question, how do you read it? Now, this question of how to keep Torah or how to keep the law, uh, I've spoken on this before. There were two significant schools of thought at the time. Right? There was a school that was founded by Hillel, right? a particular rabbi, and then there was the school of Shammai. Right? So there was these two particular rabbinic schools at the time, and they had some things that they agreed with and some things that they disagreed with. The thing that they definitely agreed with was the most important commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. So both schools, they're like, yeah, that is the most important commandment. You do that, you keep Torah. What they disagreed on was what the second most important commandment was. So Hillel, the school of Hillel, said the second most important commandment was love your neighbor as yourself, whereas the school of Shammai said the second most important commandment is keep the Sabbath, right? And this is where the school started to divide. So this is the context and the setup for this question. Teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to keep Torah. Jesus says, well, how do you read Torah? And he responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and your strength, right? We all agree that's the most important commandment. But what's the second one? And love your neighbor as yourself. So tell me, which school is this expert in the law from? Hillel or Shammai? Hillel. He's from Hillel, right? So he's from the school of Hillel. That's what he's saying. This is how I understand what it means to keep Torah. And what does Jesus say? You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Is that the end of the conversation? So Jesus is saying, I agree with Hillel as well. Good job. We can all walk away happy. We all agree on the same thing. Wouldn't that be a lovely resolution to this particular encounter? This expert in the law says, hey, tell me, how do I experience eternal life? How do I keep Torah? Jesus says, how do you think? I think this. Well, so do I. Great. Good for you. We're all on the same team, except it doesn't end there. It actually continues, which is the setup. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So this parable of the Good Samaritan, this is really important to understand, is given as an answer to the question, and who is my neighbor? And again, much like his first question, this second question is genuine because the term neighbor in Hebrew, rea, has a range of meanings. It could be interpreted as anything between, say, a close friend or a fellow Jew, which is where Shammai would definitely sit, (laughs) 
or to everyone, maybe even like a Roman, right? Which was the more generous kind of Hillel perspective. So again, this wasn't an unreasonable question for this expert in the law to ask. He wasn't trying to trick Jesus. He was genuinely trying to seek understanding. And that is where this parable comes in. Now, a parable is designed to elicit a response, right? It's supposed to prompt a decision. We're not supposed to walk from a parable and go, oh, yeah, yeah, that was interesting. Yeah? It's actually not so much a cognitive thing as it's designed to provoke and prompt. That's the kind of work a parable is supposed to do in us. And often our parables, if you're familiar with them, they have characters, they build to attention and a setup, and then there's trouble, and then sometimes an unexpected resolution or outcome in a parable. And so this is how this parable goes. I've kept the question at the top there just to remind us that that is the question that's being asked. In reply to the question, and who is my neighbor, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him sorry, half dead. Now, this is actually a very good parable because it was very true of the situation. The road between Jerusalem to Jericho was notorious for danger. This kind of image, this kind of setup was a very real one that Jesus was talking about. And this word down here, half dead, is probably an attempt in Greek to capture the kind of the force of the Hebrew word gnosis. Um, basically, this guy was in agony, right? He was kind of in this middle period between life and death beaten so badly that one probably couldn't ascertain whether or not he was alive, all right? So this is kind of what is being captured here. Then we have the introduction of some characters. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, many parables, not just the ones that we find contained within the Bible, that are all seeking to kind of prompt these different responses, they often employed a similar cast of characters, right? And that shouldn't surprise us. We often have a similar cast of characters in kind of movies. You know, you've always got the strong one, you've got the leader, you've got the kind of the sidekick who's a little stupid. You know, we have these kind of characters that kind of sit within our narrative, and we become familiar with what their role is in the story. And when it came to rabbinic parables, they were no exception. What would usually be employed is a, a classic case of three. You would have a priest kind of character, you would have a Levite, and then usually in most rabbinic parables, you would have a Pharisee, right? And the Pharisee was the hero figure, right? That was the one who had got to come and do the right thing because, of course, these parables were shared by Pharisaic rabbis at the time. Now, the priest in these parables was always the corrupt Sadducee, right? Always the corrupt Sadducee. And I've spoken about this before. The Sadducees weren't just a different kind of sect or a different kind of opinion. They were, they were essentially like kind of like a religious mafia of the day. They were exploiting people, exploiting people at the temple. Uh, and so people were know, knew that the Sadducees were corrupt. Um, and so the, the, the priest was this kind of corrupt uh, uh, Sadducee. So he was never going to do the right thing, not in any parable. And of course, in this parable, what does he do? He walks by on the other side. Now, the Levite, the Levite would most likely be a Sadducee too. Not every Levite was a Sadducee. There were some Essenes and there were some others who could be Levites but weren't Sadducees, but most of them were. 
and perhaps you could give him the credit of this particular role that he wanted to do the right thing, but at the same time he was bound to this kind of corrupt system of exploitation. So again, whether it be the priest or the Levite, they would always pass around on the other side. You see, because in the eyes of a Sadducee kind of literalist, ritual purity, that is, the the keeping clean from a dead body, superseded and was more important than all other humanitarian concerns, okay? That was the most important, okay? Because their commitment to the law was so crucial, uh, even if they were doing all this kind of corrupt stuff on the side, that it meant that people and compassion, some of those characteristics that we see in, uh, in the Pharisees and, of course, in Jesus, just simply weren't present. And again, for a little bit of context, the reason behind this is because they had a different understanding of the law. You see, uh, the written Torah or the written uh, law was, uh, was accepted by both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. There were 613 commandments and they sought to obey them. Okay? Uh, but the uh, oral Torah, that is essentially the interpretation and the application, which became this huge library of stuff within the Pharisees, um, known as Hadagah and, and Halakha, that was not accepted. And so what happened, though, was that often compassion and the choosing to place people above the letter of the law came through in the oral tradition, or the interpretation of the law, not in the literal commands. And so the Sadducees, they only believed in the oral law, so they were always going to pass by on the other side. Whereas... In anticipation in this parable, the heroic Pharisee would no doubt step up, the only one who would also observe the oral law, who would show compassion on this person. This is what the audience would have expected. And to a certain extent, this, from this story, this is kind of what Christians expect too. We, we kind of get ahead of ourselves in this parable and we forget the original question, which was, who is my neighbor? We see a person in need and and our heart goes out and we say, somebody needs to love that person. I know that Jesus commanded me to do that and I know that they need love, they need care and compassion, so I want to go out and help them. Who will be the hero? Who will be the one who does not pass by on the other side? And again, following this setup, incredible setup that Jesus has done, this is exactly what that expert in the law would have been anticipating. The priest corrupt. The Levite, corrupt. Here comes the hero. But what do we get? But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Not the person they were expecting to enter from stage left, right? And this is where Jesus, as a teacher, is just awesome. Like This is just where Jesus takes it to the next level in terms of this type of parable. So you see, instead of this kind of heroic Pharisee kind of character, you get a Samaritan. And these were the despised enemies of the Jews. Uh, There's a bit of history that goes on, but essentially the Samaritans were a remnant of the former northern kingdom of Israel, right? They, uh, when Assyrians had come in, uh, they were perceived as having uh, compromised the, the Jewish law and the culture. And I, and I use this term uh, accurately. They were essentially mongrels, okay? And I mean that in the, in, the, in the sense of they were not purebred, right? So they were mongrels in the eyes of 
are those who remain pure in their spirituality, that is, those from the south. And so there was such hostility between uh, the Jewish people and Samaritans that actually in the, uh, the early new century, between 6 and 9 uh, uh, AD, um, some Samaritans spread human bones in the temple to disrupt and scandalize the people during Passover, right? So this is a big deal between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were the ones who would desecrate the altar during Passover. So these were the enemies of them to the nth degree. Let alone the fact, by the way, that the Samaritans didn't agree with the oral law either, just like the Levites and just like all the Sadducees, right? So suddenly a Samaritan steps in. And look at the detail here. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, fascinatingly, if you want to do some deep Bible study, there's actually a parallel story of this that actually occurred historically in 2 Corinthians chapter 28, where actually the people of Samaria, who had actually attacked a particular nation, were actually convicted by a prophet at the time from Israel saying that they had gone too far. And so the people of Samaria took people on donkeys back to Jericho, right, Right. So there's this historical parallel with what Jesus is setting up here, which is just absolutely fascinating. In that time, they were considered to be fellow Israelites, and that's how they were referred. And so Jesus is picking up on this history, but what we have here in this, in this incredible parable is this Samaritan who is taking this incredible risk. He's helping the man. He's risking ritual defilement. The other thing is that by helping this, he could have been implicated in the crime. He could have been accused as the one who had caused this man his pain in the first place. And so this Samaritan truly is this incredible, heroic figure, willing to risk any danger in order to preserve life. Now, up to this point, you might be like, Gavin, we know this story, okay? But often we interpret this parable seeking to identify with the Samaritan's actions in loving kindness for our neighbor in need, right? So we identify with the Samaritan. Okay, Jesus is telling us to be like the Samaritan and to help the person in need, right? We get challenged not to reject the person while prioritizing our equivalent, uh, equivalence of kind of, you know, comfortable ritual purity as Christians today. But the neighbor that Jesus was looking for was not the man in need. This is where it shifts our perspective. The neighbor Jesus was actually looking for and explaining was not the man who had been beaten. Check this out. Verse 36, Jesus asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Which of these three? You don't get to choose the beaten guy. You get to choose out of the three. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. The neighbor 
in this parable was not the man in need. The neighbor was the enemy who showed compassion. Okay? This is really important. In this parable, the neighbor was not the man in need. Now, don't get me wrong, he's a neighbor, like we can make that parallel, but for the purpose of this teaching, what Jesus was actually getting at, what this teaching was trying to convict this teacher of the law in, this expert in the law was that the neighbor was the enemy who showed compassion. The enemy that showed compassion. So the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, is not as simple as as one thinks at the first reading of the parable. Because many people would answer any human being who is in need. But change the cast, put a Pharisee in the place of the Samaritan, and you could draw out the similar truth, right? The Samaritan wouldn't even need to be in the parable to draw out that same truth. People could all go home feeling like they're all on the same team, feeling good about themselves, still superior to the Sadducees, still hating the Samaritans. You could walk away like that. But Jesus takes things up a notch, or two, or three. Even from Hillel, right, which he sided with earlier. And it was a notch higher than Hillel would ever go. Because Hillel would never have said that a Samaritan was their neighbour. He wouldn't have taken it that far. Certainly, maybe a fellow Jew could be a neighbour, maybe even a Roman, but never a Samaritan. And Jesus says in verse 37, the second part, go and do likewise. So now what we must do is take the lesson that Jesus was teaching from the parable and place it back into the original lesson. Because when we do this, suddenly we get what Jesus is doing. So if the answer is our enemy, let's go back to the original question. Luke 10 On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Totally fine. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I live out Torah correctly? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love, let's answer, but the question, like this is, this is the answer Jesus gave through the parable. And love even your enemy as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So this is the lesson through the parable. To love your enemy as yourself. That is what it means to inherit eternal life. That is what it means to fulfill the law. Not just love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and love your neighbor as yourself, but love your enemy as yourself. Jesus says, do this and you will live. This parable is complex because it isn't about loving those in need, even though that is a good thing. (laughs) I'm not saying we don't love people in need. Of course we love people in need. Of course we do. It's just that that's not what this parable is about. This parable is about loving those you hate. Do you understand the difference here? We can love those in need, and that is a good thing. But if we really want to be challenged by what Jesus is communicating through this parable, the truth is it's about loving those people we hate, and that is way harder. That is way more challenging. 
And can you imagine the expert in the law for a moment thinking like everyone was on the same team? Hey, I'm on the team of allowed Jesus and all that team. Then Jesus shares this parable and suddenly the hero is a Samaritan and he returns back to that original question, what must I do inherit to inherit eternal life? And he knows that suddenly he has to love his enemy. He needs to love the one who desecrated the temple. He needs to love the one that he thinks isn't pure enough to be a follower of God. Suddenly, you walk away with a completely different level of challenge. You see, fulfillment of the law, eternal life, living as God created us to live, isn't inherited by loving those you love, but by, hate, by loving your enemy. Is it any wonder in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says these same words. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Children. What do the children do in relationship to the Father? They inherit, okay? Same lesson coming through that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this parable wasn't a new idea. It was Jesus pushing people again to the deeper heart of God. And so that leaves us with the question, who is your neighbor? Which again, isn't just the person in need. Because if we were to take this parable seriously and the lesson contained within it, the real question is, who is the enemy that you are commanded to love? Who is the enemy that you are commanded to love? That's what this parable provokes in us. Right now, there's a lot of concern in Gaza. There's a lot of drawing lines. There's a lot of hostility. There's a lot of pain. A lot of violence and a lot of hurt. Very easy to carve up and say one is our friend, another is our enemy. This doesn't dismiss the significance of people's actions and the responsibility thereof. But there's going to be a lot of people who consider Hamas militants to be their enemy. And I don't say this with a lot of joy, but if we were to take this parable and to actually apply it and to be challenged by the relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritans, right, and that kind of level of hostility and Jesus still amping it up, what does that mean in terms of how we treat our enemy, how we love our enemy. We might have family members who have betrayed us, and in our, in our minds, they are our enemy. What does it mean to love our enemy? Not just the people in need, but love our enemy. You might be at school and you're getting bullied, or at work and you're getting bullied, and it's like, that person is my enemy. And it doesn't mean that what they do is okay, right? It's not what we're talking about. Jesus is saying, still, this person who you consider your enemy, if you want to inherit eternal life, if you want to live as God created you to live, the challenge is to love them. Really love 
For Jesus said, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Love your enemies. I'm going to wrap it up. But I just, I just think this parable is one of these ones, right? We've heard so many times. And it's a good parable. We shouldn't walk by on the other side. We should definitely attend to the person in need. We shouldn't get let our religiosity get in the way of compassion, right? Everyone's on board with that, even though it's a challenge. And if you can do that, great. But if you really want to take it up a notch, if you really want to get gut-punched by this teaching the way Jesus intended it to be, then we can't just leave it there. We've got to ask the question, who is the enemy God is calling me to love? And I promise you, as hard as that is, you go down that path and you will experience life. Jesus says, do this and you will live. Let me pray. Get a bit fired up. I just, I just know, God. I, I yeah, God, test that this is righteous fire because I, I just know how distinctive your church can be, your people can be, if we were to actually embrace this. Um, and God, it is so hard. It is so hard to love our enemies, like really love them. Uh, but God, I want to repent. And Lord, maybe some of us need to repent of those times when maybe we've loved those in need but actually not loved our enemies. Maybe we've even waited for our enemies to be in need before we felt like we should love them. And God, we just want to repent of anything other, God, than a deep, deep love for all those you have created. God, may we be your children, as we imitate you, our Father, who causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. And God, we know we're not always going to get this right. There's going to be times when we pass by on the other side or we're not going to identify that the hero was a Samaritan. But God, I truly believe you want to do a challenging work in us and for us to really wrestle with this. And so may we feel it not just as a, a good lesson, but as something that provokes and moves us to think differently about those people in our life that we have placed in the darkness, that we have dismissed, that we have condemned. Because you haven't. And so forgive us, we pray. And prompt us toward compassion. Prompt us toward love. In your name we pray. Amen.